Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm chatting with Lasse Seppanen, who was previously co-founder and CEO of PlayRaven, the developer of the Spymaster games. Lasse and his co-founders had a unique idea for a company that they wanted to build, but had to abruptly part ways with the company at the end of 2018. We'll now hear the full story from Lasse himself. Hey Lasse, welcome to the show. Hey Joachim, how are you doing? Doing great. Hope you're doing good as well. Yep, beautiful day. So let's kick off this discussion with your background and how you got into the game industry like a while back ago. Absolutely. I mean, I've been working in the games industry for 21 years now, but actually my sort of history runs far, far longer. I was always, of course, a gamer. That's a very common trade with people in the games industry. Then at high school age, late 1980s, early 1990s, I got a computer called Amiga 500. And that's when I sort of got introduced into the demo scene. I wrote some assembler on that as well. So maybe the, the first time I was sort of writing a little bit bigger pieces of programs and uh, actually wrote a map editor for a strategy game on assembler on the Amiga. So if you know anything about that, it's a crazy idea and very stupid technically. But, you know, it was the only language I knew and I had this really burning passion to make games. Maybe that gives it like an idea of how much I wanted to make games back then. And it all led eventually to me working in the games industry. But there was actually several years after that, like where I was considering like a real job. So I was doing my first first studies in software engineering, industrial management, that sort of stuff at the university. But 1996 was a sort of a turning point because then a friend of mine told me that there's like a new programming town. And I applied, got in, studied there for three years. And my studies were focused on game design and game production. So that was 1996 to 1999. That really was the thing that led me into working in games because my teachers at the school had a games company and they hired me in 1998. That was like a dream come true, of course. And I started out as a story writer, game designer, later migrated into being a producer co-founded ITD Finland in 2002. And then I was working for a while with the Sumea guys, which became Digital Chocolate. That was 2003 to 2005. That's when I met the guys who would eventually found Supercell. They had a different company back then. And then for the next six years, 2005 to 2011, I was working in AAA. So I was at Remedy. We were working on a game called Alan Wake for Xbox 360. With $20 million budget from Microsoft. That was a sweet time in a way. But after that, I also felt like, you know, I've seen what AAA is, maybe it's try something else. I did some consulting for a little while and then started PlayRaven, which was the latest startup I had. And for PlayRaven, I was the CEO and uh, we raised about $10 million from various sources. And now I'm working at Supercell as a game lead on an unannounced game. Wow. That's a lot of journey there, for sure. How many times have you now been an entrepreneur? Did you have a company before PlayRaven? Yeah, I was actually counting it for this interview. So 
Playraven was my third games company, the fourth company overall, because I also had that little consulting company just for myself. Yeah. How did you realize at a younger age like that you want to be an entrepreneur? Was that always something that you wanted to do? Well, I think it was not so much about having my own company, but rather like having my own having control over the situation. So being able to decide what kind of games are made. And of course, in the early, very early days, I just wanted to make the game myself. But later I realized that uh, actually there's more to it than just to create the framework for making those great games can be pretty exciting as well. But I think it all really boils down to control. Like having your own company, you always have this amazing space to make decisions. I mean, whether you make good or bad decisions, then they are yours and your co-founders' decisions. That's a feeling that nothing really compares with. Was that the big driver for you to start the companies? Yeah, I think so. I guess the other reason was, of course, that back in 1990s, when the first one was started, I was still a student and there were no other companies really. I mean, if we wanted to come out with a game, it was not realistic to go work in a a company we had to think about doing it on our own but later on like 2002 it was a real choice between are we going to make our own thing or are we going to get a job and that was a big decision because it was also like between platforms and between game ideas the existing companies there was very little work done on hand consoles and we wanted to make a nintendo game Boy advanced game like a tactical sellship game so I think that's very typical in the games industry. You have this game idea you really want to get done, and then you sort of try to shape the company and everything around the the game idea. (laughs) Then you suddenly realize that you need to know the market as well. (laughs) Yeah, you need to know the market, and maybe it was a bad idea to start with, so you have to have other ideas as well. It's really dangerous if that's your only idea, so on. When we met back in like 2003 or something, I remember you were you were at Sumea then and you were head of studio. You've been in these kind of like leadership roles for almost your whole career. Mm-hmm. What do you think is kind of like the important steps there when somebody is entering, you know, becoming a CEO, leading a team? What's the important aspects there? Well, I think it of course becomes easier if you've already been in some kind of leadership role before. I think it was invaluable to get those first jobs and learn and not spend your own money while learning because you can make mistakes in your own company and you overestimate your ability to make money with the company and then you sort of put all your life savings into it. And if you have no previous experience, you're going to make your first time, your newbie mistakes. So I think one thing that I've said to many like a little bit younger people who have wanted to start game companies is tell them that it's a good idea at first to work with somebody else because that's going to give you an environment where you can make those newbie mistakes, but you also understand a little bit better. You learn something about the business, learn something about working with a team and what's needed there and so on. So I wouldn't make my first mistakes on my own dime if I was back there starting starting out. Yeah. Do you notice yourself growing in kind of like your leadership skills over the years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like these patterns, they repeat and whether you're working on a Nintendo hand console or a big AAA platform, people are people and passion is passion and, and so on. 
the team structures need to be a little bit different, of course, in a big team and the decision making is different. But at the end of the day, my principle has always been people first. So you got to make sure you have the right people and hiring is you know key to that. But also once you have those people to make sure that they, they feel really comfortable and nobody's sort of harboring any ill will, that's not sort of they get a chance to talk about those things that might be bothering them regularly. So besides learning on the job, have you educated yourself, having mentors, reading books, things like that? Sure. So of course, I was extremely fortunate because I got into that like university program back in 1996. And I could basically, with the student money, just focus purely like 100% on studying games, designing games, working on scripts, working on game design documents learning about how to like schedule things and, and so on. We even had like this team flown in from uh, the UK who brought their own computers and they were working on the Doom engine, I believe, Quake engine, something like that. They were working on their own game and they were like three or four man team and the university flew them in with their machines and we had like a full, like, full week workshop. So it was kind of a very, very unique opportunity in the mid-1990s to be able to be exposed to all that stuff. So in that sense, that was like the really the basis for educating myself beyond like just self-studies. But after that, of course, there's been a lot of books that I've read. There's the Game Developers Conference where I've been almost every year since 2001, maybe 14, 15 times. GDC Vault is pretty nice because if you don't make it to the conference or you missed something, you can always like sort of watch it afterwards. But then networking, like IGDA, for instance, here in Finland is, is a very, very good place to meet very high caliber people and exchange thoughts. And you learn so much from hearing somebody else share their thoughts, because whatever you read from a book and you kind of reflect it on your own, it's, it's a little bit of an echo chamber to an extent always. So I find that talking to people is, is pretty valuable as well. One more thing about the mentors, yes. though. So, of course, I've learned the most, I think, from two CEOs. So, Matthias Müllerinne, who was the CEO at Remedy, and then Ilkka Paranen, who was the CEO at Sumea slash Digital Chocolate. I think those two CEOs were really like, uh, I learned a lot from them, just working close to them. And uh, they were not like specifically mentors in that sense. But I think I learned a lot that I could then apply when I started my own company as a CEO later. Yeah. Just a question about this kind of like, developing yourself do you think there's like people who are more like closed and more open people to learning and how do you address that when you're running a games company yeah i don't know if it's about closed or open it might be that one thing is that people learn in different ways so some people they just don't learn by reading a book they learn by doing and then you would have to like have an environment where they can do and maybe learn from each other and so on, which can be can be tricky because books are handy, workshops, lessons, GDC walls, whatever, they're handy because they're like standardized format, they're easy to access, they're cheap to buy in most cases and so on. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, figuring out how to create like a living learning environment, it's almost like an academic challenge sometimes. But I think to an extent you are right in the sense that some people have a much stronger drive develop themselves. I think people in general, they enjoy learning new things. Because if you play any good game, you're pretty much learning new stuff, new features, 
how to use this with the features that I already know, whether it's a shooter game or strategy game or whatever. I think if entertainment is based on learning, I think then it's very universal need that we have. But the, the means and the difficulties in making people sort of feel like they want to learn uh, in, a, in a serious environment, that's a challenge, of course. Yeah. Hey, let's start reflecting on Play Raven a bit. Back in the, was it like 2013 when you had the idea and the company started to shape? What was the idea of the, starting the company? Yeah. So 2012, I was still a consultant. I was working with 12 different games companies here in Helsinki area. And I really wanted to set up a games company. I'd been a consultant for maybe six months and then I was like, I got to get back into the game. <laughs> got to do something rather than just talk to people who are doing something. And uh, uh, late 2012, the whole autumn, basically, I was writing a business plan, drawing up some like forecasts for funding and talking to various people who could be co-founders. And then in January 2013, we set up the company online, one of the first Finnish companies who were able to be founded online with the new sort of electronic system, which had opened like maybe three weeks earlier. And one of our co-founders was actually in, in Berlin signing the papers electronically from his couch there. We transferred the starting money and all that electronically. Very cool. But so the basic idea behind the company was we just wanted to make strategy games. We wanted to work on the touchscreens because that felt like a space where you could innovate, you, you could do slick interfaces, and you could also be quite ambitious creatively. There was a lot of tech that supported you already, like Unity Engine, for instance. We decided very early on to work only in Unity, and it was never really a question after that. So even before we signed the founding papers, we already chose to only work in Unity. And that, that allowed us to try innovating pretty much everything else except tech, which might not have been the best business decision. <laughs> but of course, you know, there's also this certain amount of uh, letting steam, so to speak, when you have been doing other stuff and you just want to get back into the game and then you have too many ideas, maybe, in a way. So, But I think uh, maybe the, another like important point was, of course, it felt really important to be able to control our own future. I think that was shared between the founders that we were coming from various existing jobs or I was coming from a consulting environment myself. We all felt that it's going to give us like a vehicle to decide what we do and what we're working on and with whom we are working. Did you discuss the values that you want the company to represent? I think we never sort of put them on paper. But there was, of course, a lot of discussion about how you would do things, how I would do things, and so on. Uh, so when we were... Talking with potential co-founders, of course, in the beginning, it was just me, but then soon it was two guys and three guys and so on. So we did these interviews and everybody interviewed everybody. And there were some close calls where somebody was almost became a co-founder. But then last minute, we sort of felt like maybe this person is not just aligned, that they're not sharing the same values or the same philosophy or the same ambition. So I think it was more like a intrinsic there rather than having a PowerPoint about values. Mm. It's more like you get into the discussion of how everybody operates, how, what they want to do. Yeah. 
but I mean, innovation was very key to this whole thing. So having a creative mindset and not being afraid of uh, trying new things and not doing carbon copies of other games and this kind of thing was like very, very key centerpiece. How did you find your co-founders? Network mostly. So talking to people who knew people, some people I knew from before. But there were interesting chains happening, like talk to this person who then is interviewed for a co-founder position, almost says yes, but then says no, but actually then points us to the other guy who does become a co-founder. So in this case, it was really from the network. How does it differ from hiring somebody who's coming you know, later to the team? In a way, it's, it's a terrible deal you're offering because you can't offer a high salary. <laughs> and stock is worthless if you really think about it technically and so on. But on the other hand, people have heard all these stories about uh, how these people sold their shares for millions and millions. How these people, once they finally sort of got to decide the game they're working on, they became successful and so on. So you can sort of highlight the good sides, the ability to control what we're working on, who we're working with, and uh, the business side of it, like uh, what are we going to spend money on versus what are we not going to spend money on. And people came from different environments. So it was, of course, like uh, had to be tailored to the individuals, like one person was coming from a really badly managed startup. So at least that was his sort of viewpoint. So it was very important for him that this is going to be a very well managed startup and so on. Some people were more like, you know, they were a cock in the machine in a big, big team. So they wanted to go into a small team and be able to proceed in their career as well into a position where they are doing more, more game design. It's really individual at that stage. I mean, yeah, compared to later hiring, later hiring is, of course, once, especially when you have funding, like for co-founders in a way it is, it's a big commitment. You sign papers that kind of tie you more strictly than normal employees, but you have much more uncertainty about the future of the company. Can you talk about the early days of PlayRaven? Like you were building your own strategy game and doing kind of like your own thing there. How were those times? Sure. So we started off with just our own money and a little bit of like angel money, very tiny amount, like uh, some tens of thousands. We got a room, like a five-person room at a business hotel. So they had meeting rooms for rent on an hourly basis. And uh, we were in this tiny, tiny room and full of enthusiasm. I got a few computers. Some brought their own computer in. Some we had to buy. And then uh, we started talking about what kind of game we would make. Such a, such a wonderful time when the whole world is open to you. You can sort of work on anything. Of course, reality sets in fairly quickly that you've got to make compromises with the other co-founders. And we also wanted to make sure that we were working on something that would uh, be different on the market. So that was sort of the starting point then. Strategy game, different from the market, not just on a thematical level, but also on the game mechanics level. And we were looking for something that would feel like it's potentially mainstream. And we came up with espionage as a theme because there are not really like real spying games or spy network games. I wanted to, wanted to try making one that could potentially be 
mainstream because all the espionage entertainment in books and movies and so on is very, very mainstream. Often it is the idea that the company is built around. Did you, like reflecting that part of the story of the company, was it exactly that way that the, the company then shaped up around this idea? Right at the beginning, we had a couple of like competing ideas. So we did have like a, an entirely different kind of game where you would have been managing a, an aircraft carrier and with squadrons of pilots and planes and you would be upgrading and leveling up all that infrastructure on the carrier plus all the planes and all the pilots and so on. And I think there must have been a third idea as well, but it's slipped my mind. But those were sort of competing ideas. But I think these were already like things that the co- all the co-founders felt like, yeah, I would love to work on that or I would love to work on that. So in a sense, I think we were already like shaped around it. But of course, we didn't do much hiring before we closed funding, which was maybe eight months after we started. So then that, of course, changes things, like there's new people added to the mix and so on. We raised funding for the company at that stage as well. Yeah, we, we raised two times actually VC money. So that was, I think, a little bit under two million US dollars. How did that change the company when you got really big funding? Well, I mean, for one thing, the uncertainty disappeared, of course, because we were burning our own money for the most part. And we were drawing in very, very tiny salaries. So we could take a little bit better salaries ourselves and less uncertainty for the future. But the big change, of course, comes from the people who are added to the team. And very early on, we had this idea that this is going to be a creative company. And only working on one game kind of felt like the wrong thing to do. So one of the first people we hired was a guy who could lead his own team. And we started looking into a possibility of working on two games like simultaneously. So that was a, that was a big like structural change in line with what we had wanted to do, like be very creative and innovative. And that allowed us to innovate more, of course, and faster. Yeah. Can you go into like what happened then with your kind of like pipeline of games and you actually shifted to do third-party IP as well? Yeah. So 2013, we closed the funding. I think 2014, we were pretty much building our own thing and we added a third team because we closed another round of funding a year later, like late 2014. And that was bigger. It was like uh, maybe three and a half million USD. So then we felt like pretty confident that we can scale up to three teams, but no more. Three would be like a perfect tripod of innovation. Each team sort of learning from each other, from their mistakes. Uh, they would be shipping things at a good frequency. They could borrow people from each other and so on. That felt like a really nice combo. So that was 2014, 2015. We were like full steam working with this three-game model. But then when we soft launched two of those games, our company's second and third game just didn't have the results we wanted. And this kind of uh, made us take a hard look at what we were doing. And also, we were not yet like running out of money, but we were aware that if this sort of continues, then of course, eventually we would run out of money. And that was one of the reasons why we started to look into, so what are the other ways we could sort of raise money and keep going for that big innovative hit. 
And I was just personally very familiar with the sort of old-fashioned project funding from a publisher model, which Remedy used with Microsoft and so on, other companies where I had worked in had used it as well. So it was a very natural way for us to, to go out and talk to people we already knew. Because from the very beginning, we had been very, very active in the sort of business-to-business community and trying to build as many relations as possible. So now we could leverage those relationships and go to people and talk about ideas of what we could do potentially with their IP. The idea was that if things turned nicely, we could have this uh, like a way of working where we can still innovate. And uh, this turned out exceptionally well with CCP when we signed the deal about the um, EVE War of Ascension game, where CCP said that they want this to be an EVE online game in the sense that it's part of the family, but you don't do any of the mechanics in the existing game unless you really want to. So it became a strategy game in the 4X genre. We had like full access to the assets that they had, and we just took those and modded them and used them in, in whatever way we felt like fitted this particular game. Also keeping in mind that Evenline had maybe 500,000, 600,000 players and the mobile mass market being, you know, in the billions of players. So actually almost none of the people who would see our advertisement would have ever played Evenline on the PC. So it would have been a brand new experience for all those people. So that's why I felt like we can take a lot of like creative liberties with this spaceships works this way in Evenline, but actually it works in an entirely different way in our game. That was a wonderful deal because it felt like we were getting all this creative freedom, but now, again, we were not burning only our own money. And we were really hard at work making other deals. One thing that was public was the deal with Improbable, where we were working on a a sort of a uh, massively multiplayer city driving simulator. Not a simulator, that's the wrong word, but like a driving MMO for mobile on top of the spatial OS, which is the Improbables tech. And that was a very, very good deal for us once again, because it was a really big partner with lots of money. They had raised, what, like 600 million investment money. And they had deep pockets and they wanted us to innovate. So it was, again, like a perfect, perfect thing for us at that point. Let's take a bit break and reflect back on the own IP stuff before going forward in the story, like in hindsight, would you have done anything differently to actually like, because thinking about like a runway, you have a certain runway that you can try things and put them out and see if they work or not. Would you have done anything differently now? I think we should have tested some of the ideas faster. I think some of these things just cost too much money before they were put into the test. And actually, I said our third game, but we also released a fourth game. So we had four games with our own IP before we sort of fully committed to the CCP thing. And yeah, absolutely, like testing them earlier, but maybe, well, it's tricky. I mean, the big question is, should we only have had two tracks versus three? Because that might have resulted in us being a little bit more critical about the games we were building. Because with three games, your attention as a CEO, is also divided into three things. 
plus all the external relationships you have with Apple and Google and potential business partners and so on. So if we had had only two things going on, would there have been more attention, maybe more pressure to kill earlier? It's really hard to say. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. But uh, if I were to do this again, I think we would try to get to the killing point faster. Hmm. Yeah, because that's like you usually have, let's say, 18 months runway is an average probably when you raise a few million, when you're at that stage that you could try a lot of things, but you're still going to get like, you know, less than six attempts or something. It's still a lot of luck involved there. Absolutely. I mean, how many games released become a hit? I don't know, one out of 10,000 or something. Mm -hmm. Something yeah. insane. So if you would just purely go by probabilities, then there's no point in setting up your own company. But of course, everybody who sets up their own company believes they can beat the odds by making a smart game, good game or whatever. Yeah. So then you're working with CCP and you're working with the Improbable Project. How did the story go from there? We were also like actively pitching other projects all the time. By the way, about the improbable deal, that was our own IP. So that was a nice thing in that sense as well. So we had this chance to work on something with our own IP, but with their financial risk. It's a little bit similar to what, uh, I guess, Remedy did a long time ago before I joined them when they were working with these graphics card manufacturers. So they could sort of utilize this business relationship to get some funding from them, which was not. They didn't have to give out the game IP then, which then strengthened their position with potential publishers. It was a little bit like that with us and Improbable, where we could work further into the prototyping stage with no risk, and we could still sell, sort of have a fresh negotiating position with like then third-party publishers for funding the whole thing and what the IP rights and so on. But we were very actively pitching other projects as well, looking into both like IPs that these companies had and pitching ideas around them and also some of our own ideas would be like original IP. But unfortunately, none of that played out eventually. That's why we sort of, just by the nature of how the business development went, we ended up being mostly about the EVE game and pretty much everybody sort of committed into that. Then you had a lot of things happen to the company. In the last 18 months, can you go into like what changed there and how it ended up that you actually got acquired last year? Sure. So I think the game was doing well. We flew to Las Vegas in late 2017, if I remember correctly, for the big EVE event where there's like a thousand EVE fans, most hardcore of the hardcore CEOs of in-game corporations and so on gathered there and we announced together with CCP the game there and we gave it immediately for them to play as well. We had good results from that hardcore group. And then later, Congregate joined our deal as a publisher. So they were very, of course, familiar with the mobile market, running a lot of free-to-play games on the market and giving us a lot of good advice on what to do with the game. CCP was a little bit more like a the centerpiece in that sense that it was their IP and their for them an important product. But the Congregate and, and us were sort of talking on a daily and weekly basis about the actuals of what are we going to do on the market and how is this going to work. 
And then we soft launched towards the summer 2018, had good experience there, congregate, getting us users and supporting us. And some like, uh, can't really like share any of the metrics, but we were pretty satisfied with the metrics that we were seeing. But then in September, when we were like uh, moving ahead in our own minds, we were moving ahead full steam uh, with the game. CCP had a strategy change and they were also acquired by a Korean company. So it was their internal decision, of course, it's not for me to say all the possible sort of reasons leading into it. But the bottom line was that they felt like they wanted to cancel the project. And that, of course, for us meant that we were sort of left with no active project with a big team committed to this game. And that was a moment when uh, it was pretty clear to me as a CEO. It was my sixth year as a CEO. So things had come very far from that enthusiastic five people sitting in a room full of ideas. Through all that business development grind, all the worry about money and so on, to the sixth year when uh, this deal kind of got cancelled, it felt like that's probably it. It's not very likely because we had been pitching so many ideas to so many companies. It's not very likely that somebody is going to make a project deal with us. It was just not like a realistic thing. Also, the timeline, we didn't have a long, long runway anymore. So we had to come up with a solution quickly. That really got the ball rolling because sometimes like a scarcity actually forces you to move quickly. And uh, maybe that's, you know, part of the answer to your earlier question about games. It's easier to kill games if you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so it was a little bit similar like then. Okay, so what can we do in this crisis situation? What we wanted to do is keep the team intact. Nobody should lose their job. Find a place where we can continue the work working on something innovative and so on. Trying to solve, it was more like a salvage mode in that sense, that trying to salvage as much of the situation as possible. And the lucky thing for us was that we had been so active in business development over the past almost six years that we just had a really strong network. And just placing a few calls there, we immediately got four companies that wanted to do due diligence right away. And they were flying in from... Three of them were outside of Finland, and one was Rovio, uh, of course, which ended up acquiring us. So they were flying in, doing like lightning speed due diligence processes. We were able to evaluate their offers and their sort of thinking and their culture and, and uh, what post-acquisition would look like against our thinking that we want the team to stay together, that it's not divided into various projects as resource pool. Uh, that they can keep working in the genre, 4X strategy genre, and so on. And Rovio just, at the end of the day, felt like the most natural place. It meant that people would get uh, improvements in their own employment relationships, and nobody would lose their job, which actually was how it went. So nobody lost their job in that whole sort of crisis situation. And uh, everything was like a, in a nice, neat handled sort of like professionally, but nothing was left elsewhere. Like uh, all the details were taken care of. Everybody was taken care of. And the investors were also much happier about that than any kind of like crash landing, going bankrupt or something like that. When you were the CEO of a games company that's making games and suddenly you need to shift to this mode of finding a new place, like a new home for your team, 
What's going on in your head at that stage? What does that feel like? Well, of course, there's this amount of like loss, like somebody's dying or something, because the company has been so important and so centerpiece in your mind. This immense sense of loss in that sense, like losing a person almost. I don't know what to compare it with, like end of some like very important thing in your life. Otherwise, like leaving a job that where you were really happy or, or whatever. But also, I think like some of it was relief because there were so many like companies who wanted to acquire us that it gave us a strong position to negotiate. Because if there had been only one acquirer and time pressure, then it would have been a tough one. But this gave us a position of strength. And it also was in a weird way rewarding to see that all those relationships we had built and worked so hard on and so many travels and, you know, strain on family when you're away. Those relationships actually meant something. They actually were turning into then business proposals. How did uh, the experience shape you as a game developer now? Well, that's a good question. So I guess I have seen over the past 21 years the games industry from almost every angle in the sense that I worked as a designer and story writer like in the trenches. I've worked as a producer leading teams. I've been pitching a lot to like people with money doing that and then being head of studio, like managing people who lead teams. And then finally being a CEO for almost six years and carrying the overall business responsibility and working with investors. So all of it and especially the play raven time have has had a very, very like big impact on me as a developer. And I think having seen all these viewpoints made it much clearer to think about the next step. Like if I've already tried all these things, if I could choose freely, which one would I sort of go for? And that's part of the reason why I'm here right now at Supercell. It's like the relationships you built there at Playraven over the years. It's probably also everybody had shared experience. So how do you see those relationships nowadays? Well, we're still good friends with many people there. I just met one of my co-founders yesterday and had my kid along. She's three years old. We just went to the playground and chatted over a coffee and so on. There's another one, uh, another guy who was our COO. I just met him a couple of weeks ago over coffee and, and so on. Our ex dev guy has a new company called Black Block, which I think you interviewed. So he's doing well and I've been cheering him on and so on. It's There's many relationships like that, which I think, I hope, will sort of last the rest of my life. Do you think the whole experience of Playraven has it also enabled you to deal better with stress? I think so. It was extremely stressful time, especially the last year. So I think I've had to like actively think about ways to reduce the amount of stress. I think some of the key sort of tools is first to understand that brain can be overextended and overworked. So you got to first sort of realize, in my opinion, that just be mindful what you are putting your brain through. And then some like concrete things you can do that I do is, for instance, I turn off the data on my phone at 8 p.m. Usually every night, unless there's something important like a conf call or or something. If you don't have the data on, then you still pick up the phone, but you realize you can't really do with anything with it. You can't go to the work Slack or 
chat, Facebook with people who are in the industry and so on. And there's really no need for it. I think that's given me a lot of like uh, respite. It's like a, a lot of peace of mind before going to bed because sleep is so important. If you're thinking about work when you're falling asleep, at least for me, it's pretty hard to get that like deep sleep and, and good sleep. You keep waking up and worrying about this and think about that and making notes and and so on. Another thing is exercise. Of course, that's, you know, all the doctors always say exercise more. It does work to a degree and it's helpful. It does burn off your like stress to a degree, but uh, I still think it's even more about the brain, like being like conscious about clearing your mind every now and then, being objective and looking at your mind. Am I thinking about work? Like in the last hour, have I been thinking about work? Of course, like good fiction can be also a vehicle. Like sometimes I listen to a good fiction audio book right before going to sleep just to clear my mind. If there's something pressing like going on, then getting caught up in a different world through fiction can be helpful in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, life goes on. Yeah. And I mean, you have to tackle so many challenges during the day that if you keep worrying about it 24-7, it's just you're wearing down your brain and you're less able to solve those problems anymore. So it's like taking a break from your work can actually refresh you and you come back and you solve more efficiently. Yeah. Thinking about the past five years and all the things that happened, is it something that still comes back to you every day? Well, maybe not every day anymore. I'm just so consumed in the game we're working on right now, to be honest, which is a good thing. (laughs) I mean, it would be be a little bit sad if I was working on a new thing and just thinking about the old thing. It's life, you know, game projects come and go, game companies come and go, but life goes on. We are here to have a bit of fun while we are working on important stuff and uh, entertaining people. So the show must go on. Totally agree on that point. Let's go into the final questions here. Sure. What is your favorite book and why? I think there's like two books that. I have really like influenced me. One is called Critical Chain. It's a fairly old book, maybe from the 1990s, but it really made me think about how you can never have a balanced game team or a balanced any kind of production machine where everything is in perfect harmony and producing at the rate so that every single step is, there's no waste anywhere. No time is wasted or no energy is wasted anywhere. But It's more like when you read the critical chain book, you understand that there's always going to be some resource in your team that's right now the bottleneck and understanding that and then putting like a a lot more attention into that and ignoring even some of the things going on gives you like good focus on and a leverage point where to turn, for instance, if you need to shift the project in a direction or you have to make sure it runs on time or and so on. So for instance, at Remedy, we had this massive, massive machine working on a AAA game. But one of the key sort of critical chain pieces we identified was Sami Yarvi, our creative director and writer. His own personal schedule was so tight. He was so much in demand with everybody. You know, hey, look at this trailer video. Hey, you know, read the script, write some stuff, and play the game and so on. That we ended up like just managing his personal schedule, which we didn't do for anybody else on the team. But we felt like that was that has so many implications to everybody else's work that we had to sort of help him 
by managing your schedule. That's just one example, but I've seen this happen many other times. Sometimes it's a designer, sometimes it could be the art department, whatever it is. And it, it changes over time depending on which stage your project is in. But having read that book, I understood that I don't have to control everything. I just have to be mindful of where the critical sort of components are and help them do the job. Then the whole uh, will succeed. The other book I wanted to mention is called Positioning. This is a marketing classic, how to be heard in an overcrowded market. It was written way before like free-to-play games were ever invented. And the examples there include like why is Coca-Cola successful and, and so on. It's really, really like uh, central to my thinking about how commercial brands, why they're successful and why some of them are, are, are not successful. I highly recommend it if somebody wants to look into that. Like it's very useful stuff just when you're building your game to be mindful of that stuff. Let's go into the next question then. Biggest lesson learned being a game startup founder? There's so many lessons, of course, from like almost six years, but maybe the biggest would be that you should never assume you know everything. That's like a trap where you are sitting at your whiteboard and you think you know everything. If you're running a startup, your job is to be prepared for surprises. So you make a plan, but you already, when you're making the plan, just make sure you're ready to change it next second. And uh, maybe sort of related is keep networking and talking to people all the time because it does contribute you to knowing a little bit more while you still don't know everything. Now you know a little bit more and you have a better visibility into the environment where you're making decisions. What keeps you up at night? The classic question. These days, I have to admit, I sleep rather well. But uh, last year when I was at Playraven, it was, of course, the constant worry about continuity and is there going to be funding? Are we going to have to let some people go? And those things were really, really like big burdens to carry. As the last question, now that you've had all the experience that you've had, how do you nowadays approach work and life balance in your game industry work? Yeah, that's a super important question. I mean, being a startup, you're a little bit like working on some sort of overdrive, even if you try to manage yourself, it's your baby and you, you're just like, you're going all out. And there was so much travel going on. There was so much business development going on. I think like moving to this job at Supercell, one of the important decision-making factors was really that there would be no business development whatsoever. There would be much less travel, which would then automatically sort of translate into a better work-life balance from that point of view. And there would be no worrying about, uh, are we going to be able to pay next month's salaries, that sort of thing. But I think there's also the, the side of things that even if you don't have to worry about money, of course, there's the passion side of things, driving. And I really personally just love the game we're working on right now. So I want to be very mindful and cautious about not overextending myself because of that. Like uh, family, of course, is very helpful in that. You got to pick up the kids from daycare and you got to pick up the kids from daycare. It's, it's like a hard stop. You got to go home. It's important, I think, to have that work-life balance. That feeling productive is important, but then also having this balance. And I think one of the tools that I've been using in the past five months here in a new job 
is really trying to limit my exposure. It's a big company, 300 people. There's a lot of things going on, many games live, many new games in the pipeline and so on. There's so many distractions you could sort of get yourself into that I've been trying to keep my head down as much as possible and just have this very like a laser focus on the game we're making ourselves. Nice. Thanks so much, Lasse, for coming on the podcast and uh, best of luck to the game. Hope it's going to be a big hit. Thanks, Joachim. This was fun. Thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks again to Lasse for sharing his story. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest. In the meantime, please hit subscribe to this podcast so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. Thank you guys. Talk to you soon again. Bye-bye.